Chapter Eighteen of Villette. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Villette by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Eighteen. We quarrel. During the first days of my stay at the terrace, Graham never took a seat near me, or in his frequent pacing of the room approached the quarter where I sat, or looked preoccupied or more grave than usual. But I thought of Miss Fanshawe and expected her name to leap from his lips. I kept my ear and mind in perpetual readiness for the tender theme, my patience was ordered to be permanently under arms, and my sympathy desired to keep its cornucopia replenished and ready for outpouring. At last, and after a little inward struggle which I saw and respected, he one day launched into the topic. It was introduced delicately, anonymously, as it were. "'Your friend is spending her vacation in travelling, I hear.' "'Friend, forsooth!' thought I to myself. But it would not do to contradict. He must have his own way. I must own the soft impeachment. Friend, let it be. Still, by way of experiment, I could not help asking whom he meant. He had taken a seat at my work-table. He now laid hands on a reel of thread, which he proceeded recklessly to unwind. Ginevra, Miss Fanshawe, has accompanied the Chomonries on a tour through the south of France? she has do you and she correspond it will astonish you to hear that i never once thought of making application for that privilege you have seen letters of her writing yes several to her uncle they will not be deficient in wit and naivety there is so much sparkle and so little art in her soul she writes comprehensively enough when she writes to monsieur de bassompierre he who runs may read in fact ginevra's epistles to her wealthy kinsman were commonly business documents unequivocal applications for cash and her handwriting it must be pretty light ladylike i should think it was and i said so i verily believe that all she does is well done said dr john and as i seemed in no hurry to chime in with this remark he added you who know her could you name a point in which she is deficient she does several things very well flirtation amongst the rest subjoined i in thought when do you suppose she will return to town he soon inquired pardon me dr john i must explain you honour me too much in ascribing to me a degree of intimacy with miss fanshawe i have not the felicity to enjoy i have never been the depositary of her plans and secrets you will find her particular friends in another sphere than mine amongst the chumneys for instance he actually thought i was stung with a kind of jealous pain similar to his own excuse her he said judge her indulgently the glitter of fashion misleads her but she will soon find out that these people are hollow and will return to you with augmented attachment and confirmed trust i know something of the chumonleys superficial showy selfish people depend on it at heart ginevra values you beyond a score of such you are very kind i said briefly a disclaimer of the sentiments attributed to me burned on my lips but i extinguished the flame I submitted to be looked upon as the humiliated, cast-off, and now pining confidant of the distinguished Miss Farnshaw. But, reader, it was a hard submission. Yet you see, continued Graham, while I comfort you, I cannot take the same consolation to myself. I cannot hope she will do me justice. De Hamal is most worthless, yet I fear he pleases her. Wretched delusion! My patience really gave way, and without notice, all at once, I suppose illness and weakness had worn it, and made it brittle. "'Dr. Breton!' I broke out. 
There is no delusion like your own. On all points but one, you are a man frank, healthful, right-thinking, clear-sighted. On this exceptional point, you are but a slave. I declare, where Miss Farnshaw is concerned, you merit no respect, nor have you mine. I got up and left the room, very much excited. This little scene took place in the morning. I had to meet him again in the evening, and then I saw I had done mischief. He was not made of common clay, not put together out of vulgar materials. While the outlines of his nature had been shaped with breadth and vigour, the details embraced workmanship of almost feminine delicacy, finer, much finer than you could be prepared to meet with, than you could believe inherent in him, even after years of acquaintance. Indeed, till some over-sharp contact with his nerves had betrayed by its effects their acute sensibility, this elaborate construction must be ignored and the more especially because the sympathetic faculty was not prominent in him. To feel and to seize quickly another's feelings are separate properties. A few constructions possess both, some neither. Dr. John had the one in exquisite perfection, and because I have admitted that he was not endowed with the other in equal degree, the reader will considerately refrain from passing to an extreme and pronouncing him unsympathizing, unfeeling, on the contrary, he was a kind, generous man. Make your need known, his hand was open. Put your grief into words, he turned no deaf ear. Expect refinements of perception, miracles of intuition, and realise disappointment. This night, when Dr. John entered the room and met the evening lamp, I saw well and at one glance his whole mechanism. To one who had named him slave, and on any point banned him from respect, he must now have peculiar feelings. That the epithet was well applied, and the ban just, might be, he put forth no denial that it was so. His mind even candidly revolved that unmanning possibility. He sought in this accusation the cause of that ill success which had got so galling a hold on his mental peace. Amid the worry of a self-condemnatory soliloquy, his demeanour seemed grave perhaps cold, both to me and his mother. And yet there was no bad feeling, no malice, no rancour, no littleness in his countenance, beautiful with a man's best beauty, even in its depression. When I placed his chair at the table, which I hastened to do, anticipating the servant, and when I handed him his tea, which I did with trembling care, he said, Thank you, Lucy, in as kindly a tone of his full pleasant voice as ever my ear welcomed. For my part, there was only one plan to be pursued. I must expiate my culpable vehemence, or I must not sleep that night. This would not do at all. I could not stand it. I made no pretense of capacity to wage war on this footing. School solitude, conventual silence and stagnation, anything seemed preferable to living embroiled with Dr. John. As to Ginevra, she might take the silver wings of a dove, or any other fowl that flies, and mount straight up to the highest place, among the highest stars, where her lover's highest flight of fancy chose to fix the constellation of her charms. Never more be it mine to dispute the arrangement. Long I tried to catch his eye. Again and again that eye just met mine, but having nothing to say, it withdrew, and I was baffled. After tea he sat 
sad and quiet, reading a book. I wished I could have dared to go and sit near him, but it seemed that if I ventured to take that step, he would infallibly evince hostility and indignation. I longed to speak out, and I dared not whisper. His mother left the room. Then, moved by insupportable regret, I just murmured the words, Dr. Breton. He looked up from his book. His eyes were not cold or malevolent. His mouth was not cynical. He was ready and willing to hear what I might have to say. His spirit was a vintage too mellow and generous to sour in one thunderclap. Dr. Breton, forgive my hasty words. Do, do forgive them. He smiled that moment I spoke. Perhaps I deserved them, Lucy. If you don't respect me, I am sure it is because I am not respectable. I fear I am an awkward fool. I must manage badly in some way, for where I wish to please, it seems I don't please. Of that you cannot be sure. And even if such be the case, is it the fault of your character, or of another's perceptions? But now, let me unsay what I said in anger. In one thing, and in all things, I deeply respect you. If you think scarcely enough of yourself, and too much of others, what is that but an excellence? Can I think too much of Ginevra? I believe you may. You believe you can't. Let us agree to differ. Let me be pardoned. That is what I ask. Do you think I cherish ill will for one warm word? I see you do not, and cannot. But just say, Lucy, I forgive you. Say that to ease me of the heartache. Put away your heartache, as I will put away mine. For you wounded me a little, Lucy. Now when the pain is gone, I more than forgive. I feel grateful as to a sincere well-wisher. I am your sincere well-wisher. You were right. Thus our quarrel ended. Reader, if in the course of this work you find that my opinion of Dr. John undergoes modification, excuse the seeming inconsistency. I give the feeling as at the time I felt it. I describe the view of character as it appeared when discovered. He showed the fineness of his nature by being kinder to me after that misunderstanding than before. Nay, the very incident which, by my theory, must in some degree estrange me in him, changed indeed somewhat our relations, but not in the sense I painfully anticipated. An invisible but a cold something, very slight, very transparent, but very chill, a sort of screen of ice had hitherto, all through our two lives, glazed the medium through which we exchanged intercourse. Those few warm words, though only warm with anger, breathed on that frail frostwork of reserve. About this time it gave note of dissolution. I think from that day, so long as we continued friends, he never in discourse stood on topics of ceremony with me. He seemed to know that if he would but talk about himself, and about that in which he was most interested, my expectation would always be answered, my wish always satisfied. It follows, as a matter of course, that I continued to hear much of Ginevra. Ginevra. He thought her so fair, so good. He spoke so lovingly of her charms, her sweetness, her innocence, that, in spite of my plain prose knowledge of the reality, a kind of reflected glow began to settle on her idea, even for me. Still, reader, I am free to confess that he often talked nonsense, but I strove to be unfailingly patient with him. I had had my lesson. I had learned how severe for me was the pain of crossing, or grieving, or disappointing him. 
In a strange and new sense I grew most selfish, and quite powerless to deny myself the delight of indulging his mood and being pliant to his will. He still seemed to me most absurd when he obstinately doubted and desponded about his power to win in the end Miss Fanshawe's preference. The fancy became rooted in my own mind more stubbornly than ever, that she was only coquetting to goad him, and that, at heart, she coveted every one of his words and looks. Sometimes he harassed me in spite of my resolution to bear and hear. In the midst of the indescribable gall-honey pleasure of thus bearing and hearing, he struck so on the flint of what firmness I owned, that it emitted fire once and again. I chanced to assert one day, with a view to stilling his impatience, that, in my own mind, I felt positive Miss Fanshawe must intend eventually to accept him. Positive? It was easy to say so, but had I any grounds for such assurance? The best grounds. Now, Lucy, do tell me what. You know them as well as I, and knowing them, Dr. John, it really amazes me that you should not repose the frankest confidence in her fidelity. To doubt, under the circumstances, is almost to insult. Now you are beginning to speak fast and to breathe short, but speak a little faster and breathe a little shorter till you have given an explanation, a full explanation. I must have it. You shall, Dr. John. In some cases you are a lavish, generous man. You are a worshipper ever ready with the votive offering. Should Pear Silas ever convert you, you will give him abundance of alms for his poor. You will supply his altar with tapers, and the shrine of your favourite saint you will do your best to enrich. Ginevra, Dr. John. Hush, said he. Don't go on. Hush, I will not, and go on, I will. Ginevra has had her hands filled from your hands more times than I can count. You have sought for her the costliest flowers. You have busied your brain in devising gifts the most delicate, such one would have thought as only a woman could have imagined. And in addition, Miss Fanshawe owns a set of ornaments, to purchase which your generosity must have verged on extravagance. The modesty Ginevra herself had never evinced in this matter, now flushed all over the face of her admirer. Nonsense, he said, destructively snipping a skein of silk with my scissors. I offered them to please myself. I felt she did me a favour in accepting them. She did more than a favour, Dr. John. She pledged her very honour that she would make you some return. And if she cannot pay you in affection, she ought to hand out a business-like equivalent, in the shape of some rouleau of gold pieces. But you don't understand her. She is far too disinterested to care for my gifts, and too simple-minded to know their value. I laughed out. I had heard her adjudge to every jewel its price, and well I knew money embarrassment, money schemes, money's worth, and endeavours to realise supplies had, young as she was, furnished the most frequent and the favourite stimulus of her thoughts for years. He pursued. You should have seen her whenever I have laid on her lap some trifle, so cool, so unmoved, no eagerness to take, not even pleasure in contemplating. Just from amiable reluctance to grieve me she would permit the bouquet to lie beside her, and perhaps consent to bear it away. Or, if I achieved the fastening of a bracelet on her ivory arm, however pretty the trinket might be, and I always carefully chose what seemed to me pretty, and what of course was not valueless. The glitter never dazzled her bright eyes. She would hardly cast one look on my gift. Then, of course, not valuing it, she would unloose and return it to you? No, for such a repulse she was too good-natured. She would consent to seem to forget what I had done, and retain the offering with ladylike quiet and easy oblivion. 
under such circumstances how can a man build on acceptance of his presence as a favourable symptom for my part were i to offer her all i have and she to take it such is her incapacity to be swayed by sordid considerations i should not venture to believe the transaction advanced me one step dr john i began love is blind but just then a blue subtle ray sped sideways from dr john's eye it reminded me of old days it reminded me of his picture it half led me to think that part at least of his professed persuasion of miss fanshawe's naivete was assumed it led me dubiously to conjecture that perhaps in spite of his passion for her beauty his appreciation of her foibles might possibly be less mistaken more clear-sighted than from his general language was presumable after all it might be only a chance look or at best the token of a merely momentary impression chance or intentional real or imaginary it closed the conversation End of chapter 18